I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Um, my name is Roy Riley. I'm 12, year, 12 years old, living in Seattle, Washington, and my favorite run up Crystal Mountain is probably Brand X. How long have you been skiing for? A long time, like kindergarten? Four years. Lauren, I want to introduce you to my friend Rory. Oh, I'm so excited. I love this story already. Uh, Fitz, how do you and Rory know each other? So I think one, for the record, I think Rory has actually been skiing for six years because I have been there for a lot of it. So our families, they we ski together at Crystal Mountain anytime we get the chance. Like this weekend, we'll all go together. Roy's a little bit older than my son, Tep. But our like families all shred together. Right now, our ski group ranges in kids from 15 to 7. My youngest, Wiley, is the youngest of the crew. It's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really fun. And I'm super jealous. Uh, so why exactly are we talking to Rory today? Well, in, besides the fact that he is hilarious, and I feel like I could just <laughs> make podcasts with Rory, um, Rory, like, in a lot of ways, he's just this normal 12-year-old, right? He plays the viola in middle school, in the middle school orchestra. He's on a couple soccer teams. Um, but there's something about him that I think is pretty cool and unique. Oh, I made a ski mount for my Halloween costume. Okay, well, tell me what this is. Uh, it's Mount Doom. So, there's two peaks, one on the left and one really tall one on the right that has no lift going up to it. And, the, like, the left side is, like, the really dense side. There's a lot of runs, easy to hard, lots of lifts. And then as you get closer to the right side, it gets harder and harder. And when you get up to, like, the very peak, it's, like, all double blacks going down. And you have to, like, hike up to get there. On the other side, there's just literally lifts everywhere. And on the main side of the peak, uh, on the side of the top of the peak, there's a run going down that leads to the back side. Because there's a back side, obviously. And on the back side, there's one lift and a bunch of hard black runs that are, like, very... Okay, what are some of the names of the runs? It was nice knowing you. Guess this is the end. Know to run. I have the power. Crown. Doom, death, and despair. Husky defeat. Husky domination. Oak. I reused a bunch of names at the time. So there's Oak Bowl. Then uh, over here's like less names, less brutal names. So there's Chocolate, Boring Butter, Melted Butter, Crazy Dog. Hazel. Oh, one of my favorite names of all time is Hazel Covered Death. Doom, just plain Doom. In the true endgame. The endgame has begun. And life's end. Suffering. What's suffering rated? Double black. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> life's end is off the 
those are both off the peak of the tip of the mountain on the right. It's just like all double blacks. <laughs> Rory, are we all doomed? So far, just me and Wiley. Okay, so wait, I have to stop right here. Fitz, what did your boys dress up for as Halloween last year? I had to check. I was like, I had to look at my photos, but a race car driver and Yoda. So okay. like a little more standard. I mean, those are great costumes. I'm proud of the boys, but not a ski map. Yeah, exactly. So they're pretty normal kid costumes. But Rory, who's 12, dressed up as a map for Halloween. Yeah, I told you. He's a pretty cool kid. When did you get interested in maps? Last year. Yeah. Why? Because I wanted to create, like, a ski run, not like a ski hill, even though I, because I couldn't, like, ski all these runs I'd imagined, but I could, like, map them. Cool. And what were the runs like that you imagined? Were they hard? I mean, obviously with names like Doom and Despair and um, Certain Death. They were hard. They were, like, always, like, closed off, like, trees surrounding it, not a lot of people. They're always like smaller. They're not very big. What would your if you could invent a ski hill? What would it? What would it be? Oh, you're showing me. Okay. What is this? The high wall basin? Yeah. So it's like you get this big, massive basin, like a massive bowl, into the side of a mountain. Uh-huh. And the walls are like steep. Down going here, like down on the top, the walls are really steep, and lower down, the walls are like more of like a blue, easier. And then there's like runs off to the side outside of the basin that are like part of the hill, but the main part is like the basin itself, which have like one lift running up and a bunch of runs off to the sides, and like a, and like lots of hard to get to stuff, lots of hard stuff, and they're always covered in powder. They're always covered in powder. Yes. So, Lauren, I think of maps as almost a a portal into adventure. Like, it's almost a challenge. Oh, yeah. I feel that way, for sure. Years ago, I actually spent a season working at Alta in Utah, outside of Salt Lake City. And I actually had the ski map tacked up on my wall so that whenever I covered a new piece of ground or a new piece of terrain, I could highlight it because I was totally like this beginner skier when I showed up there and seeing the map and all the opportunities that it presented really motivated me to like go check out new places. And I wanted to get better at skiing so that I could get higher and higher on the mountain. I'm I'm curious whether you ever um, thought about that map because you obviously looked at a lot. Like, did you ever think about how it was made or, or who made it? Honestly, I don't really feel like I did because at that time, that was the only ski resort I'd ever been to. And I don't think it really occurred to me until I went to Big Sky, Montana the next winter and kind of had this realization that the maps looked really similar. You know, they're they're of different terrain, but they have the same sort of flavor. And I never really knew who was behind it. But that's when I guess I started to get this inkling, you know, that like something was going on here in the world of ski maps. So if you've ever skied or snowboarded at a resort in, well, pretty much anywhere, certainly in the United States, even abroad, you've probably grabbed a map at the ticket counter and scoped it out while you're waiting in line or riding the chairlift. And I'm borrowing this term from economics, but it turns out that behind all those ski maps, there's actually this invisible hand, right? There's actually an artist whose actual hands have been creating these maps 
that have totally shaped our ski resort culture for the last 35 years. So today on The Diaries, we sit down with James Niehus and talk about the power of creative thinking to take us places. We're all just trying to get to the next spot on the map, and sometimes that's scary unless we have someone to show us the way. I'm Fitz Cahal. And I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. in western Colorado and and uh, you know I've been doing this since I was probably 10 years old uh, I started painting sceneries though at the ninth grade whenever I came down with nephritis and had to be on my back for three months and uh, so my mom bought me a, a, a painting set oil paint of all things to buy for her kid to work on in bed it's like uh, wow that was they're pretty messy you know but uh but that's where I really got into landscapes was uh, during those months. James moved to Denver to work as a freelance graphic artist. And as he was putting together the stream of odd jobs, he met a guy named Bill Brown. And Bill Brown was the previous trail map illustrator. And uh, it was uh, just a matter of timing because he was really finding another interest that he really wanted to pursue. And he just uh, kind of turned it over to me after he saw my portfolio and saw what I could do. I was just very lucky. And and at the very same time, a new magazine came out, Snow Country Magazine. And they came to Bill and Bill sent them on to me. And so immediately I had a full page spread every month. Wow, Fitz, that seems like pretty incredible timing for James. Yeah. And while James was a talented artist, he still had a lot to learn about making maps. Were you a skier when you when you first got this job? Not a very good one. <laughs> I, I, I learned to ski in the Alps, believe it or not, when I was in the service. We were on a very beginner hill and... Um, Never did get up on the other slopes. And, and at the end of the sessions, why they, uh, they had a contest. And I, and I had the fastest time down that little slope. So I thought I was pretty good. But I got up, come back home, and went to the local uh, ski area, Powderhorn, in, uh, in Colorado. And I had to walk off the slope. Uh, I, I picked a narrow intermediate run. And I hadn't got used to sliding, letting my skis slide. So I'd traverse from one side, try to turn and traverse to the other, getting down this this very tight run. And finally, I was tired of falling, and I just picked up my skis and walked off the slopes. (laughs) So I wasn't very good, but I learned on the job. Um, Had another incident uh, where I was on assignment to a Utah ski area and was uh, skiing with the instructor. He was taking me around the mountain. And I uh, just couldn't handle five new inches of snow. And so I'd fall quite a bit. He finally got a little disgusted with me. And he said, he said, you'd think a guy that painted the ski maps could could ski. 
Oh man, I can definitely relate to Jim. Um, that season that I told you about that I worked at Alta, I totally got bullied for not knowing how to ski all that Utah powder. <laughs> but you know, in all seriousness, I think it's pretty surprising that James got into making maps first as an artist and not as a skier. Absolutely. I think, you know, he was this obsessive landscape painter who saw these maps as a really unique challenge. I try to uh, portray the mountain in a way that the skier can really understand it. I, I really hope people do use my maps to explore. It's a puzzle and it, it uh, enthralled me. You know, it. Um, I was so eager to solve the problem of how do I show this mountain the best way. I certainly paint them as much for the skier as for the ski resort. I feel like I'm finally starting to wrap my head around this idea that Jim's actually like hand painting all of these maps and I'm thinking about it and I'm just like, Fitz, ski resorts are huge. I mean, like we're talking thousands and thousands of acres, right? Like how do you even start making something like that? So James, he's got to develop a process for deciding how to capture all the angles of a mountain landscape, right? It's different than a photo, right? Because a map or a representation of a map, it it allows you to cue into certain elements and then you can see that with your own eyes, right? So he has to figure out which features are the most important to people out on the slopes. Today, I would go in on Google Earth and take a good look at the uh, at the ski resort and turn it and see the potential that there is there. And if it's a large ski area, I'd visit it and fly it. If it's a small ski area, budgets are always uh, a factor, and I would direct somebody there to do the flight for me and get the aerial photographs. It's very important to shoot it at a time of the day that there's long shadows on the on the mountain to to show these undulations in the surface and the, and the shapes of the bowls. So he'd end up with about 100 photos, and then he'd start sketching. I would situate the lifts first and make sure that I have enough room to put in the trails that I'm going to represent. And I, I sketch in every little detail there is. I, I'll sketch in the shadows, everything. And I'll, I'll draw every tree in that I have. Uh, if there's a glade, I'll go ahead and paint in the important trees, at least. The way that I paint them is is with the airbrush very first. The sky comes in, and then the surface, all the surface snow comes in. And then I'll probably work in some of the rock cliffs in the, in the uh, upper regions and work my way down in, and then I can go ahead and attack the forest. I feel like what I'm starting to really appreciate now about James's maps is that unlike a normal hiking map or a topo map or something, right, these have so much art on them. Like there's so much detail and you don't get that on your standard hiking map. Totally. It, you know, so many trees, right? There's rocks, there's cliffs, there's different angles and features. And to a skier trying to navigate all that terrain, it's really important to have those things. So, you know, the trees are roughed in with, uh, with watercolor. And, um, and then I'll come back and kind of re-wet it. It'll um, form a, uh, a texture that I like for the trees. And, and uh, then I'll go ahead and put in the highlights, which is usually snow, and put in shadows. So a tree is, you could think of it as painted three times anyway. 
And that's a that's a, quite a job. You have to have a lot of patience to paint as many trees as I've painted. Uh, but you know, you find out that uh, no matter how long it takes, it's going to be in use for a long time. And uh, it's just well worth the time. Was there, through the years, were there any mountains that were particularly, you know, challenging or intimidating to depict? Uh, well, I think probably the most intimidating mountain to depict would be Mount Bachelor because they ski on all slopes, 360 degrees. But through the use of shadow and, uh, and, and that mountain in particular, because the backside is not clear-cut runs, but glade runs, um, you know, I could get pretty vague on that and, and still be effective as a map. Well, I have, of course, the Western ones are my favorite because of the cliffs and the dynamic scenery that, that is involved in painting them. All of them are my favorite whenever I'm doing them. It's pretty mind-blowing to me, actually, how much time and effort and attention to detail, you know, it takes James to put all these together. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but I wonder if it'd be easier for ski resorts to use computer-generated maps. I mean, we love art, of course, but it feels like, is this really the best way to get information to skiers? Yeah, I asked James about that, and he said at one point, about 20 years ago, uh, people started to think the same thing. A lot of people were turning to computer maps, and um, it was kind of a new thing, and they thought it would be something that would... Uh, would be good to, to have. And, and uh, they soon found out that it just didn't do the job that mine would. What I'm doing here is something that's very uniquely human. James explained to me that on a ski map, he needs to try to portray a three-dimensional mountain with all its intricacies on a single page, a two-dimensional map. And he does this by subtly distorting the perspective. He actually turned around and pulled down his map of Telluride off the wall to use as an example. Now, Telluride is a fairly complicated mountain. And if you would get up and photograph this from the air, you wouldn't see the town side here hardly at all. You'd be looking into this bowl. And, and plus, the area up in here was kind of behind a little rise here. And my job was to show everything in one view. How do you get this without changing your distances, for instance, uh, but you need to make it look as it skis. And so that's things that um, um, to date, you know, I don't think there's any computer that can really uh, do that type of job. And, and then it's just the feel of the brush, the textures you get in painting. And, and that's something that you don't get on the computer so much. So I, I think there will remain a place for a very good artist to, to make a living in this business for a while yet. I certainly hope so. We'll be back right after the break. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. 
When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Support comes from Kuat Racks. The Piston SR is a single rail bike rack that easily mounts on most roof racks, overlanding utility racks, and truck bed rack systems. The dual ratcheting piston arm grabs your tires and makes no contact with the bike frame. So that's better for your bike, right? Plus, the rack has an all-metal construction, genuine Kashima coat, and integrated cable locks. That translates to being super burly. Kuat has taken their Piston Pro X and elevated it. Find more details at kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this rack. Lauren, I have a, I have kind of a question for you. You've obviously done a lot of really cool things outdoors. And there are challenges we don't get to invite into our lives that like happen to us. But, you know, if we're lucky enough, there are moments where we get to invite challenge into our life, where we accept the unknown or discomfort or a a lack of clarity of outcome. And I'm curious, like, what is the most intimidating thing you've invited into your life? For me, that's been deciding to go back to school. What'd you go back to school for? So midway through the pandemic, I was kind of like having a lot of thoughts about my career, but I just felt like I needed to see how else I could challenge myself. And so I decided to go back to school to get a master's in journalism. And then having never been (laughs) to Berkeley, California before, I basically just packed everything up and moved there for a two-year program. And in a lot of ways, it felt like a super intimidating experience. Like I was pretty comfortable in the mountains, but I was not very comfortable in the city. Yeah. It's so funny. I was like, I did not expect you to say that, you know, like in like on a level, I would I would think like there's something reassuring about a graduate program. where are like, I've got these classes. I've got the you know, like there's this path. There's like, you know, and so many other things you've done. There's like not a clear roadmap for becoming a Yosar member or doing high angle rescue or, you know, all the crazy stuff that you have done. Yeah, I'm so I'm sort of surprised. Why? Why do you think it was? intimidating like why was that the most intimidating thing beyond moving the city as i've thought about it there's kind of two different things that i think were going on that made it feel really scary at the time and one was that i felt like i had no opportunity to kind of like get my feet wet test the waters you know it really reminded me of standing on top of this big shoot in big sky montana with a friend who was a much better skier than me and he kind of brought me up to this hike only terrain and my skis are like quivering, you know, hanging over this lip. And I'm, you know, just totally dragging my feet, terrified. And he looks at me and he says, you know, it doesn't get any easier just by looking at it. (laughs) And I think that's kind of this had some of that too, which is that like, I didn't take an online class and kind of test it out. Like I had to fully move, you know, quit my job, stop what I was doing and like go do something completely different. Like there was no backing out. It's all or nothing. It was all or nothing. Yeah, totally. Um, But like even maybe more importantly than that, I think the fact that it was all or nothing was 
kind of heightened by the fact that I didn't feel like I really had anyone to show me the way. And I feel like in the mountains, whether it's climbing or skiing or anything that I've done before, all these things that seem scarier and are objectively considerably more dangerous, um, I've always had tons of mentors. Like I've always leveled up slowly, you know, and taken, a, you know, bitten off a little bit at a time and always like with a more trusted partner who's kind of been there to show me the way. And I felt like with school, it was like this huge turn away from the path that I was already on. And it felt like I didn't have anyone to kind of look to, to like tell me what it was going to be like or like what was going to be coming. And in a lot of ways, that like lack of mentorship is what made it feel so scary. Yeah. Like you didn't have a map for it. Yeah, exactly. Can't imagine anything else that I could have done as an artist. I mean, I'm glad that, that I was part of this little map that people sometimes just throw away or it is so used it was so you know like uh, an area would print up 200,000 maps and go through them and uh, so the exposure was just tremendous and it's just been mind-boggling you know for the success of it I, I never never dreamed that it would be so successful I'm just uh, beyond any words of how to really describe how thankful I am and how gratified I am. But I was pretty set on retiring. Of course, I've come back from retirement a few times. Uh, whenever I stated I would retire, and then some resort would call, and, and it would be very intriguing, and I uh, came out of retirement. So it was still very interesting to me to do trail maps. And um, so whenever I said I would retire, I really didn't convince myself that I would. I was trying to, I think. But this uh, new project, the Great American Landscape Project, has really uh, kept me going. And I'm so to that that uh, I've really hung up the trail maps uh, for good now. Wow, so that's it. He's really done? That's what he says, at least. After 35 years of making maps that are now synonymous with American ski resort culture, James has officially moved on to something new, something he's kind of always wanted to do, which is pretty cool. I just wanted to paint scenery all my life. And of course, I got into the ski maps and then I'm doing ski maps. But the, the idea of combining it and then doing the sketches in black and white uh, was not uh, something that I thought of long ago. It was after retirement, and I finally decided this was the way that I could do it. It seems really fitting to me that he's back to landscapes full-time, because that's where the whole thing started for him. Yeah, it's really cool to see his excitement for painting hasn't waned at all. Um, it's like, you know, he was really in it for the art all along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and with the American Landscapes Project, he, like he did with the ski maps, he's thrown everything into it. His original goal was to do 50 landscape paintings, but he did that, so his new goal is 30 more. I was uh, inspired by Ansel Adams' black and white photographs, which are still around and, and well-accepted and, and well-loved, you know, because he was so good at capturing the contrast and the textures of nature. And uh, so this inspired me, and, and, and I thought, I can do this in black and white. It doesn't have to be in color. Do you, do you feel like now at, at, at 77, you're realizing 
who you actually are as an artist now with this American Landscape Project? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I don't have to uh, make a mountain a little bigger to show that it runs better. And, uh, you know, I can, I can uh, uh, present it as I want to present it. You know, what advice would you have to a 12-year-old who's interested in map making and interested in creativity and also interested in skiing? Um, you know, what, what would you want to say to that younger generation? Pick up a, a watercolor set and um, just start experimenting. Find your own style. Follow your passion. I mean, if you're really passionate about it, you'll be good. Okay, Fitz, but what about the skiing? Yeah. So James is getting older, right? And when I asked him, this is what he said. And the last time I was up, I was up with my grandkids up at Powderhorn, and and I crossed them once, and I they were slipping, and I you know I just um, um, felt like maybe I shouldn't uh, be pressing my luck too much more, so I've hung them up. <laughs> Each of us is always evolving. And I think it's worth thinking about, like, you know, what, what's, what's the intimidating thing out there in your life? There is the ability to look around and think someone else has done this before and to look for those people. It's like every time we have to make one of these really difficult decisions to kind of bring hard things into our life, like you said, like no one can ski the shoot for you, but it really helps when you can look back and someone gives you the big thumbs up, you know, and tells you that you got it and then they send you on your way or that you get to see them drop into the line maybe ahead of you. And so you know it's possible, you know what you need to do. And I feel like that's one of the biggest things is that like that person can be that roadmap. I think Rory's got some good thoughts about that. Um, Rory, do you think that the map you know, like the map of crystal, the one yeah. that we use to like get around. Mm -hmm. Do you think that seeing the places on the map made you want to go there? Well, seeing on the map told me about it. And yeah. then I'd never seen it before. So I'm like, what's that? So then I asked about it. And then I learned about it. And then I wanted to know what it was like. So and then I was wondering if I like wanted to go ski it because I haven't skied it before and it might be fun or not. <laughs> Were some of them scary to ski? Yeah. 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 What was the what was the scariest one to ski? Scariest run I've ever skied? Yeah, or just like the one you were most intimidated by. Like the things you saw on the map. The king. The king. The king. When did you ski the king? Two weekends ago. Were you psyched? After or before? <laughs> During, after, before, whatever. Uh what was it like before? Nervous. Okay. What was it like during? The hike? Thinking that this is a bad idea. Okay. Skiing? Amazing and like I've never done this and like this is incredible. Would you do it again? Yeah. Cool. In good conditions. Thank you, James and Rory, for sharing your stories. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. 
you can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiary.com. Music today from Curio, Tigers in the Sky, Jesse Sidenberg, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists or track club. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by me, Fitz Cahal, and Lauren Delaney Miller with additional production help from Ashley Langholz, Becca Cahal, and Evan Phillips. Illustration by Walker Cahal. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.